Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. This is yet another holly jolly installment of X's for Podcasts AU Investigation that began with a look at Spider-Girl by Tom DeFalco. Now, yes, it is worth mentioning the great TDF's name because TDF is not just a way to get discounted tickets to New York City shows. No, Tom DeFalco has made his mark all over everything spider so it only fits that today we would find ourselves looking at a tom defalco christmas issue of the amazing spider-man one featuring my namesake nate gray i was very excited when this issue was on offer for us to discuss for the holiday season and it's issue 420 which is both two-thirds of my bloodstream and a really interesting point for what it represents something i I love about this being the issue that it is this now cover dated February 97, which means Christmas 96 issue represents a really fascinating moment in Nate Gray's trajectory. So I'm very excited to talk about that story. But I made some shitty remarks last episode about how there are no like real concentrated Marvel Jewish heritage or Hanukkah stories that aren't specifically highlighting like surviving the holocaust or being so about your heritage that that is your one characterization right and a little bit of investigation poking around a little bit totally honest with you it's because i was looking for more wolverine christmas stories i was trying to find how often wolverine put on a santa suit because frank did it like five times so i wanted to know how often logan put on a santa suit and in the process i found that it would appear there are as many holiday specials featuring brew as there are holiday specials featuring Hanukkah. But I managed to find one, and I just want to make it very clear that when I refer to my statements earlier as shitty, it's that that's the reality is pretty shitty. So we found a Hanukkah story. And I can't believe I had no idea this one existed. The last story in an issue from over a decade ago. I'm stoked that we're going to be talking about it, but your comment still stands insofar as, uh, you know, as a Jewish person, I would love to see more representation overall. I'd love to see more representation at this time. Not that Hanukkah is for most Jewish people, uh, especially for practicing Jewish people, you know, that are observant of their faith. It's not really a big holiday day for us. It is not what Christmas is to the rest of the world, but we are an assimilationist people and when we realized that everybody else was having fun in December, we got on board and found a way to make it work. So, you know, we've got our own traditions and I would love to see that discussed a little more. As an ally to, you know, my Jewish friends and actually several of my partners are Jewish, so I am, you know, really proud to get to talk about this story, but I know I'm talking about it as an ally 
and it did take two of you uh, convincing me that Hanukkah is in fact not just Jewish Christmas. And uh, but that makes sense because I'm constantly trying to convince people that Christmas isn't really Christian Christmas. That yeah. you know, Christian Christmas is Easter, and Christmas is sort of you know the New York Stock Exchange Christmas, and that's a okay. I'm really fine with praying to the God of FAO Schwartz if it in fact brings the magic and energy that comes around with the holidays. I'm not saying it needs to have any sort of religious tone, although there is no escaping that all of these traditions are steeped in the unavoidable pagan tradition, right? So you can go way back before the the Christians if you want, but no matter what, there is kind of a magic that comes in the holiday season where there's a few more stories about light and sharing and community than I think we're used to a good portion of the year otherwise. You know, it's the one time of year that I'm almost positive a team-up isn't going to be about fighting. And that is pretty fun. I mean, I live for a holiday special, a Christmas tale in comic books. I think for exactly that reason, because you kind of know for the most part that you will be getting something different. We're talking about Nate Gray, so we do have a little AU tie-in when we talk about this, but like Christmas stuff is kind of its own special AU, even when it's canonical and taking place. Like the vibe is just really an alternate vibe in a way that if nothing else, the fact that it is more or less reserved for this time of year and that it is very reasonable to expect it is makes it something special. And I was so glad when you reminded me that the Nate Gray factor actually does kind of make it cri- uh, AU. I almost said Christmas. <laughs> It's so unbelievably wild that Nate Gray even factors into this conversation. And like before we can get into Amazing Spider-Man 420, which I am excited to talk about, as well as the Marvel Holiday Special from 2011, I'd love to get a little bit on like, why Nate Gray for you? I know that we've talked a lot of Dazzler with Nathan. We've talked a lot of Jean Gray with me. But I feel like Nate Gray does not enter the discourse of modern comics in quite the the way that he might have in December of 96. It is a lot of factors. First and foremost, he is, with the kind of exception of the Generation X kids, he's kind of like a really big, I am, I think at the time I'm maybe nine or 10. I have now, it's been years that I've been reading comics and my brain is growing as I do so. And I'm finally at the point where I understand most of the lore I don't have a ton of access to back issues, so, and the internet is not really a thing because this was quite a long time ago. So I really am just having to pick up all of the information I know about the X-Men through context clues and just whatever back references I can get, but, and which led me for years to like just thinking things that were absolutely incorrect. For some reason, for the longest time, I thought that Archangel and Storm had a relationship. And I'm just at the age now where, it's all coming together for me and I really understand everything that's happening with every character I picked up on everybody's backstory Gen X was really only four issues in when Nate Gray was introduced so they were not so precious to me yet that I couldn't add one more person into the mix and the child of Scott Summers and Jean Gray just conceptually the children all of them are always going to be really special to me I feel as though I come 
from a family where, you know, my parents were very much like very difficult to live up to. They were kind of heroes to me and to people in our community in their own right. They were very well-known people and being their kid kind of meant something, but I couldn't really get cable because the thing that I really identify with Nate is that he is a total fucking flop. And that is really my whole Nate Gray world. I just think he's like a cool, fun, silly character. So emblematic of the 90s. And he's also one that just has a ton of potential. And, you know, he's somebody that I would still really love to see in comics today. I was a little bit bummed about Age of X-Men, but if nothing else, it reminded us that he exists and is a toy worth picking up every now and then. And it's interesting that when we think about Nate Gray, he represents an alternate universe version of a character that he has the same name as, that he has the same fucking look as. Yet there was such careful attention to detail that even if you did kind of think of X-Men as like cable light, I guess, there reached a point where they made the decision to change them both radically. It's just, it's so funny that they ultimately wound up kind of circling all of the same story motifs for a very long time. And I remember how often it felt like X-Men was being like foisted onto other titles. It felt like something you couldn't avoid, that you were going to read a book with X-Men in it against your will, even if you liked him. I mean, this is far from the only appearance of X-Men in a Spider-Man title. He's going to go on to appear again in 429 next December, which is just unbelievable. He's going to appear in 425 before that. He's going to appear in several issues of Cable, of Generation X, an issue of Daredevil. I think that that explanation, that that description, that he's kind of foisted on you, you will be reading Nate whether you want it or not. Even as somebody who loves the character, that is how I feel about a lot of these stories insofar as I want to read about Nate in whatever capacity I want to read about him, but I don't necessarily want him pushed into places where he's not an organic fit. Even as somebody who is the champion of the character, I don't, that's, those don't create stories that I like and they don't create moments that I feel like are going to engender the fans to him. So I think that is a really smart way of putting it because it kind of, I think helps to also explain why he is the flop that he is, even though I think he is like a cooler character than people realize. And I wonder how much of it has to do with the nature of comics telling us that a character had value at this time. There's something really interesting about tracing Nate Gray, about tracing his appearances, and knowing how many of them are a part of other stories. He's introduced in the Age of Apocalypse, and within one year, he's caught up in the Onslaught story. Now, Age of Apocalypse ends in June of 1995, and by X-Man 15, not even a full 12 issues or a year of storytelling following his introduction to the 616 universe he's embroiled in onslaught which is going to represent some 20 appearances for this character following that by x-man 30 he is involved in operation zero tolerance and not to say anything too mean but 
but you know, by 1997, I don't know how many people were still like, let's talk about characters that are replicas of other characters that are already going out of vogue that are from alternative universes that we've tried to forget from several years ago. Yeah, I think that they really lost the plot of what could make Nate cool, forcing him into stories rather than finding the writers that really related to him and could tell the stories that made sense for him. Because I, I still feel that a lot of those have not been told and really haven't even been gestured at. But the one way really to not do it is just to keep hammering it in, you know, insisting that people read about this dude. One of my favorite stories about Nate isn't really even about Nate, but it sort of gets to what I think could be cool about him. And it is the moment after House of M in Cable and Deadpool, where Cable had been aged to a baby and that gets resolved and he is just rapidly but like over the course of a couple days aging back into you know his older male self and at one point he is the same age as Nate Gray and he looks exactly like Nate Gray he is Nate Gray's body and it was just this really beautiful subtle reminder of something this important detail about these two characters that from there you really can spin off away from the idea that either one of them is important for whatever powerful prophecy time and space spanning reason and just kind of know that there is this crux that you don't really ever forget because they're, they're you know his name is Nate Gray you're never really going to forget it so having accepted that let's tell his more interesting more character driven stories and I think the ultimate result of the Nate Gray experiment is a focus on the humanity of Omega level mutants and not their power level because Nate Gray was seen as commodifiable because of his power level. We never really got to see Nate Gray seen as commodifiable for the complexity of his character, as you're saying. So I think, you know, as we continue to look through some of Nate Gray's appearances, it becomes incredibly clear that the character was at all times a victim of the machine that was trying to design and push him. As he started to appear in things like the X-Man Hulk annual and then within a year Generation X-50 and X-Man 50 line up which is actually kind of magic because Generation X had gotten through four issues before going on hiatus to become Gen X from Age of Apocalypse and X-Man started in that time and just continued its numbering so even though they started four months apart their issue fives came out at the same time that's just sort of a cool thing that they kept that synced through issue 50 of both titles shortly thereafter we would see the inclusion of x-man yet again in a big way in apocalypse the 12 but it's hard not to look at his inclusion in apocalypse the 12 and not think once again he's being utilized as a power unit not as a character and he's being utilized as a cable stand-in which it just you know is a very expected beat and i think it surprises me how often given the fact that like you know the character if if somebody survives a year i always think it's reasonable to expect that you don't really need to do their most obvious beats very regularly from then on because you know that they're going to have 10 years 20 years such a long time in which you can hit that beat again this early on going right into the relationship with cable and then with apocalypse it just kind of is like okay so like you're kind of dooming this guy by not letting him be anything but extra cable. You know, 
it's really funny because I don't know that I ever thought of him as extra cable. I always think I felt that he read as either like discount cable or cable alternative, but he never felt like it's more cable. It always felt like because cable was born of the excess of the 90s that later created the excess that created Age of Apocalypse that created (laughs) X-Men. He always seemed like the copy of the copy of the copy. It's a little bit trying to clone Frank Castle's kids. You know what I mean? We're looking at a character that was actually a character for so short a time. Like, reasonably speaking, by the time we got the first X-Man story ever, we're talking the first X-Man story was March of 1995. And when you think about, you know, how long Cable had been around, it's maybe not as long as you'd think. Of course, it's undeniable that Cable has since been retroactively designed to have been created in January of 1986. Not a bad time to create cool psychics, if you ask me. I guess I'm deciding that we're psychic here, but sure, who's going to fight us, right? So he was created in January of 1986's Uncanny 281. Definitely an unavoidable fact, but it isn't until New Mutants 87 in March of 1990 that the old man of Cable first appears. So March of 90, March of 95, Cable had only existed five years when X-Man was infused into the narrative, really complicating things. And for a chunk of that time, Cable was not intended to be Nathan Summers. That is, when you talk about the fact that he's technically around in 86, it is, that is a retcon, which is fine. It's a great retcon. I love it. I love Cable. I love how it all came together. I love Strife. But yeah, it really is so little time in which it is understood that the child of Cyclops and Madeline Pryor and also Jean Grey is this person and to work on what really that means and then to introduce someone who I really appreciate that your response to me saying extra cable was that he feels like, you know, alternate cable, cable light, a copy of a copy. Those things are all true, but then you factor in the idea of the power level in which Cable is not able to ever fully use his powers because he is constantly holding back the T.O. virus. So the idea is if you could create the child of Summer's genes and Gray genes and it had no problems and it had no techno-organic virus to deal with, that child would essentially be the most powerful person in the Marvel Universe, on Earth at least. So you've got this particular character who is supposed to be this enormously powerful, important person. And in that way, he is extra to Cable. And yet in every other way, and so much of this is because of the lack of organic storytelling with him, he really does not feel like that. He really does feel like a cheaper version, a lesser version, and if nothing else, a much more confused version. And to that extent, to that confused idea, I want to note that your point about there is such an amount of time that they clearly did not think that Cable and Nathan Summers, the child, were the same person. If we take a look at the timing on all of this, right? The complicated thing is Nathan, the child, only existed for about, you know, I want to say 20 issues before he kind of faded into some amount of the background and the storytelling. While true, he did appear in X-Factor number one. It's unbelievable to think that he didn't really 
start to matter again until the end of 1988 with Uncanny 239, which lines up with X Factor 35 because Madeline and Nathan kind of disappeared into the background for a significant amount of time, for which time his name was Christopher. And it's X Factor uh, 37, right around where the Inferno stuff happens, where Nathan starts to appear in the book more regularly. He's in X Factor until X Factor resets, right? So X Factor gets this whole new thing going on where Apocalypse has decided to make his move and remove Nathan from the situation because this kid might destroy him someday. Sure. This all takes place in Endgame in X Factor 66 through 68. Now, X Factor 66 through 68 actually came out in May through July of 1991. So at this point, Cable has already existed for a little better than a year. And in that little better than a year he's existed, he has appeared more as Cable than he ever did as the child who's existed for five years. Okay, so now little baby Cable goes away and we're cleaning up this timeline, right? It's middle of 1991. It isn't until at the end of 1992 that it's made officially clear that Nathan and Cable, the baby and the guy who was at one point going to be an alternate future version of Cannonball, right? That they're the same person. So Child first appears in January of 1986. Cable first appears in March of 1990. And it isn't until the end of 1992 in Executioner's Song that it's made clear that he is the child of, the, of Scott and Jean and that Strife is also a clone of that same child and so now let's wrap this all back together X-Man first appears in March of 1995 it wasn't even three years after it was confirmed who he was that we're getting an alternate universe different backstory version of how this all happened and it just seems so silly because there are so many ways that you could get Nathan Summers back and powerful if you really needed to do that I also want to point out that it is clear that you can, in retrospect, look at Nathan is confirmed to be the child of Cyclops and Jean Grey and Maddie, but it's never actually said officially because they do want to leave themselves some wiggle room. They already are doing this retcon. They want to give themselves some space in case they want to do more with it. So this is something that takes them such a long time to commit to and for you as the reader to be like, okay, this is definitely happening like be it that there's often a flip of which one is actually the clone however you want to say it or do it it is just so little time in which to develop a character and story and yeah i mean i don't know whether it was buyer's remorse or what happened such that you know they felt like we needed another one i think it's this whole idea that the age of apocalypse by being an alternate mirror was going to allow them to kind of jumpstart the line. I'm not here to have an argument for or against 90s comics, but there is a directionlessness that first sets in when the exodus occurs. And I want to call it the exodus because Claremont left in X-Men number three and by X-Men number 11, Jim Lee is gone. So it's not like it was just one person who left. Within two years, Peter David leaves, 
you know, there is a lot of turnover in this period of time. Wheezy Simonson left with, I think it's New Mutants 97 is her final issue. So you really see the changing of the guard. And that does result in a directionlessness as, you know, as it would for any company where a handful of stewards had been leading the charge for years. So even if it's some of your favorite stories, and that's fine that it is, a lot of 1991 to 1994 at X-Men Marvel is choppy. It's just not the tightly woven ship it once was. It sees some great sails, and it's beautiful to look at in many times, but I think they thought that Age of Apocalypse was going to be the panacea for an illness they couldn't quite explain. And it's funny because it really doesn't, that cure does not come until the Morrison era. And then, you know, very quickly we're on to the decimation. But no, I mean, I think you are absolutely right. This is a very beloved time for me as a comic book reader. So much of that has to do with nostalgia and the feeling that you have as a kid when you are just have such a sense of wonder about what you read. None of it has to do with me sitting there going, these were some of the best comics I had ever read. Or rather, these were some of the best comics I had ever read because I was eight years old and the bar was very low but I remember that feeling so well and I remember these stories so well and you know I remember really liking this Steve Scrooge art that now I don't know that it works for me as much as it did then I think it is very 90s and I believe I, I said of the Punisher stuff that we covered that the 90sness of that art made me very happy I feel the same way about the 90sness of this art but I don't know that it holds up to scrutiny regarding quality and consistency that is okay yeah i love this stuff if you love this stuff you are right there with me i think we can still agree that there are problems and it maybe would not be an era to emulate whole cloth there might be pieces that you want to pick up and play around with but you know to go back to something like this i think would really take us far back so you know just sort of to say like you're right there if you think that this all makes you happy but we do have to accept that it is not the best quality stuff. And I think you can see that pretty quickly translate into the what I might refer to as manic fallout that occurs shortly after this issue. There is a lot of emphasis placed visually on that X-Man is the guest star of this issue. And he's even given a very strong visual presence on the cover. But a quick bit of research allows us to see that his subsequent appearances in titles that don't bear his name, which would be Amazing Spider-Man 425, Amazing Spider-Man 429, and Daredevil 371, all from within a year of this issue, little more than his name appears on one of those titles. And I think that's even part of how so many people have things they love about this era of comics, because it was so manically shifting from thing to the next, that there's a lot of stuff to love, and that by like 1997, X-Man was already kind of over. Like, it seemed like this appearance was the last one to get the note that this book was done, you know? Yeah, I do, and I think that is absolutely right. I will say I was so happy to read this and to have this be the first real kind of Nate Gray coverage that I'm ever doing on this show, because I do think this is closer to the type of story that I'm talking about. This is closer to Nate Gray character work. It's closer to making him somebody who would be viable on the 
the streets of Manhattan and not just being like a dude that needs to be stuffed into Onslaught's chest in order to power the engine of the thing or whatever. This warmed my heart a little bit. And because we are moving in the direction of actually discussing it, I just want to disclaim now that this is one of the gayest comics I have ever read in my life. I was trying to think about like my gay meter and like how gay I could go. And yeah, you know, I've read a lot of comics by uh, Patrick Fillion and Deimos, and I would still put this up on that list. They are so close to kissing like half a dozen times. And, you know, people say that like there is this undeniable chemistry between Johnny Storm and Peter Parker, that they are both characters that if we lived in a different society, it would be very obvious that they were bisexual and writers would feel comfortable saying that. And, you know, regardless of whether Spider-Man was with Mary Jane or Gwen Stacy, it would be something that you could say like they hook up or they have or they dated. Nate kind of feels like the third side of that trifecta and granted much less play with everybody but he really does just feel like a very bisexual character and he just has an absurd amount of chemistry with Peter Parker to the degree that like I want to talk to Tom DeFalco about this specifically I do think it is unintentional I also think it works perfect now I took a little look around where this takes place in X-Men and it's after the departure of X-Men's first writer Jeff Loeb who would remain in contact with the second writer Terry Cavanaugh who would continue on the title allowing Cable and X-Man to have some crossover moments and the artist on X-Man at this time is Roger Cruz and Roger Cruz took over after Steve Scross left so the artist on this issue of Amazing Spider-Man who's doing a bunch of Spider-Man at this time it you know had a really familiar feel you could tell that the artist felt comfortable with X-Man, but this is where I'm going to say something super critical. I don't care for Steve Scrooge's art in general. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that I do either. It's it's that tough thing. Like, I feel this way kind of about Joe Mad too. It is something that is so recognizable and home to me because there was just so much of it at this young age where I'm absorbing stuff like a sponge that I feel my love of it as a 10-year-old, in this case a 12-year-old, I definitely can't defend it and seeing it now it's really not something I want to repeat so I guess I would say just at the end of the day what I'm saying is it has a lot more to do with the nostalgia and memory value than it does with whether or not this adds something to any of these characters or to the story so to dial in finally after just so (laughs) so much introduction because I feel like you know Nate Gray does require it I feel like it is such a massive moment in comics history we're taking a look at the amazing spider-man 420 from cover date february 97 but street date december 1996 Twas a night before x-man written by tom defalco with pencils by steve scross inks by bud la rosa letters by richard starkings and comic craft colors by bob sharon with separations by gcw i have no idea what that's supposed to be good christian witches i, I don't know what that is but it's also of note that editor ralph macchio was on this Editor Ralph Macchio comes up a bunch on Billy Club because he was a major player in Daredevil for a while. And of course, he is not the Karate Kid, nor the next Karate Kid, or the Karate Kid after that, and is in no way affiliated with Cobra Kai. Important disclaimers. It was necessary in the 80s to put Mm -hmm. in like every Marvel comic because no one could believe there were two Ralph Macchios. I also want to just say that this is another one that is special.
special for us, you know, not just because of the Nate Gray stuff, but because we get another Black Tarantula reference. Oh my God, Chesbro and a Christmas tree is everything I've always needed. And the other super gay thing about this issue is everybody talking about, especially Black Tarantula talking about how he needs El Uno, the one. Which I just kept being like, Black Tarantula can't get away from these like fucking prophecy people. These like destiny relationships. And Eluno is, of course, the most roided out character in the history of 90s Manhattan. Oh, I don't know. Spider-Man on the cover is pretty fucking nuts. And I want to just commend Spider-Man on this cover for going out of his way and taking the time to wear a cup. It does really look like he has a jock strap on, like just the belting of the blue and what is a bulge that is so unnatural it can't even be stuffing in that capacity. It does kind of have to be a plastic insert of some kind. You know, he was ready for Nate Gray to psionically rip his clothes off, which is what is happening on the cover and happens in the issue itself. And that is just one of a number of gay moments we'll be discussing. So the issue itself has a lot of really major background stuff that we've pieced together enough through Spider-Girl telling us what happened and the handful of Amazing Spider-Mans we've read by Tom DeFalco that, you know, I have an idea of who the Rose is. That's not a problem. Man, let me just tell you, I am gay for these letters. I don't care that these letters look a little bit like somebody used the Homestead site builder to put together this issue. I am criminally obsessed. This is word art in a way that I haven't seen since Clippy told me how to use Microsoft Office. I love it. I really do appreciate the excess and the flourishes. I started off by trying to separate out the words that are done in this unique font and different coloring to see if they were spelling out some kind of message. Okay, Mark Z. Danieleski. <laughs> Rose You get the gist of the present. song now. <laughs> Uh, so Rose Trash Shot Present was not a message. The book was not predicting <laughs> any kind of future. I then tried to figure out if the emphasis had some sort of like in-universe, like when she says Rose, if there she has like a powers moment. What's happening there? No, also that is nothing. Yeah, it is nonsense and I, get, I appreciate the excess. Now, the issue pretty quickly moves to Peter engaging with Nate in a park and I'm frustrated because and it's one of those things where like you know if you ask me to sit down and explain how these you know 10 Tori Amos songs are totally different or why these four Mariah Carey Christmas songs are unrelated to each other just to keep it a little on brand right we can even use Tori Amos Christmas songs they all sound kind of the same too right these guys look so similar especially when they're face to face on Marvel Unlimited digital page Eight. That is something that's really nice, that this was just an issue of Amazing Spider-Man, made it so easy to just get on the Unlimited. But when they are face-to-face, and one of them is in a scarf, and the other is in a hoodie, and they're both in black like hoodie sweaters over it, and both of them look like they're rocking some sort of cravat, 
like it is ye olden Christmas time. There is something visually almost disappointing about how, by my eye, they look like brothers. Yeah, you really only have the color of their different, like the, the scarf and the hoodie, which either thing could be either thing. So it really is the color that is different. And then the fact that Nate has the white bangs. That is pretty much all you get for differentiation. And, you know, the, we start off this page with a sort of approach that gives us a bit of a Western, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. And then they move closer and within two panels, they have gone from, you know, shootout at dawn to gay twins. Gay color-coded twins because it's the 90s. Yep. I'm a little sad that this Chez bro looks a little more gnarly. You know, I like and, our... And he's a very Igor... Yeah. He, he, he doesn't seem to be having a ton of fun in his life, which is, yes, we like ours much better. Our Chez bro from the MC2 universe is a little bit more William Shatner in Miss Congeniality and a little bit less William Shatner that time he screamed at me in a footlocker. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's the vibe I'm getting here, right? Yeah. They clearly don't have the shoes he's looking for in the eight and a half he needs. So I'm sad for him. He's having a bad day. But the next page, again, we immediately have issues sort of telling them apart. I actually have a moment on page 10 where Peter's turning and Nate is facing the other direction that I thought it was a motion thing. Yeah, yep, I can absolutely see how you would get there. We also get a moment that is reminiscent of like a closeted celebrity where these two are just trying to talk and they're being hounded by Nate's adoring. Nate is setting himself up as a prophet. He's like sitting in Washington Square Park just reading people's minds and talking to them about their problems. And so now all these people want to follow him and like have their problems solved and he walks away with Spider-Man so they can go have a chat because they both sense that they have powers and it, it you know they're they both have secret identities like it just gives this vibe of like if only we could be alone but we are being hounded by your fans lance bass yeah these guys look like they're ready to go into space so okay i have some questions about peter's clothes exploding off of him i don't know what it is about that panel but something feels weird about it i don't know if it's the pose or it's something about the face the shouting of yikes that he's so wide and dense yet I think there's something like weirdly juvenile about the face and the hair like this looks like a composite image I feel like I'm picking on the art a lot and I feel really terrible about that that's how it's coming across because I have a lot of really lovely things to say about a lot of the depth of use of color there's not enough said about the way that the 90s first introduced the idea of hypersaturation of color as a form of storytelling and not just as a form of embellishment there's things like the color transition background shot that's also on the exploding clothes page page 11 where it's just a color gradient transitioning down the negative space of what was clearly kind of like uh you know and i mean this with love but i make comics i know when i've written a panel and taryn the artist on kid riot he'll just message me and he'll be like nico you wrote a 24 page book when we agreed to a 20 page book and uh you want this panel done it's gonna be a negative space okay and i'm like yes yes just make it cool and like I'd find this pretty cool I think the gradient is maybe yeah the gradient is a little check out my GeoCities web ring but it's effective yeah I mean the whole point here is to be seeing Nate shredding Peter's clothes because he has to get Peter's clothes off 
So, you know, we can definitely forgive it. I will also say, like, I am amused by the homoeroticism of this issue. I do think if if that was at all intentional, and even if it wasn't, this hyper-angular face structure, hyper-muscular body structure, the gay twinning boyfriends thing, like, this art actually lends itself very well to this vision of the book in a way that, to me, is is really gay and really campy and unfortunately I don't think anybody intended that but I really wish they had even just to do you know my dream would be to hear from both of these men that they had intended for this to be a really homoerotic book but you know they knew they weren't going to be able to say anything canonically so this is what they did because that would feel really true to me and it would work really well if it is just kind of how it all happens to be then you know it's just my interpretation and then the art isn't really attempting to do anything it just kind of falling into a hyper stylization that lends itself to a gay reading but that's where i am with it so i'm I'm not unhappy in that regard i'm also not unhappy with the queer coded reading as well because to you know kind of put it all on the table and it's currently wrapped in nasty pig i think there's something about like let me show you my secret origin Mm -hmm. that is really intimate even if not intimate in a sexual way back then it was just two men sharing each other's power and that's such a stupid obscure 30 rock we were just laughing about that same joke the other day jake and i seriously i kept when i made that joke to each other all the time Oh, man. Well, I'm really glad I miscounted the men on that one. So, you know, and one of the things that cracks me up is it's that moment from Angel where Wesley's like, I kept a girl in a box. And Willow is like, yeah, I nearly ended the world. Where, you know, Peter's like, yeah, well, my uncle's dead. And Nate is like, what's an uncle? This is pain. (laughs) I love the coloration on that. What it like. I would legitimately trade the entirety of the Age of Apocalypse for, not really, that's a fucking lie, but I would love that pinup with those colors, just no letters on it. It is a cool-ass pinup of the Age of Apocalypse. Fully agree. Yeah, you know, they are both trading their backgrounds of pain. Again, when Nate says, I later learned that the man who was using me was the same one who had killed Ford. Like, there's just a, like, I got used by a man, that they're doing this while sharing secret identities and tragic backgrounds. It's just, it's so there for me. It's also a transitional moment for Peter in a way that I think is confrontationally trading roles of masculinity. Like the thing that we've focused on a lot is like there's something very big, hot power top about X-Man. And they even go out of their way to make it clear that he is a mature man, giving him the white streak, which I know maybe people don't realize how much something like a white streak visually ages a character, but especially in combination with the Steve Scross art, it puts him at a strong 35. Like, it's rough because I know he's supposed to be like 21 and like the hot kid in college. I'm supposed to be projecting like peak career Brent Everett onto him or something. And like Peter was the it boy. And Peter has been the stable definition of a masculine superhero coming of age for the last 50 years, although at this point, 30. And it is almost like Peter is 
is accepting this new young buck in in that role by allowing him to strip him, exchange memories in an overwhelming way. There is something subtly and unusually submissive about the treatment of Peter here, yet the strong, calm, you know, it's the whole bottom say hi, verse says hey, and top say hello. I don't even know what the fuck Haya says, but it's just like, you know, full-time cat boy. And I feel like that's what we get from Nate. We get the strong hello, and Peter's like, hi, in a way that we're not used to. We're used to Peter being kind of like, hey. But, you know, no matter what, he's a little bit heya here. And that energy is really palpably attractive to get from Peter, who is usually this much more, at this point, you know, technically masculine figure. I think when you get a character, so for one thing, he's also just like, Nate Gray's whole thing is that he's super powerful. He's much more powerful than Spider-Man. He lifts him up, he throws him around, he rips off his clothes, all with his telekinesis. So there is this way in which like he's really doming him. And Spider-Man, Peter Parker is the guy who quips and cracks wise and everybody around him just kind of rolls their eyes. The villains hate it. A lot of the people in his life aren't really laughing at his jokes. To get a character that also isn't necessarily laughing at the jokes, but is so clearly attracted to the energy of Peter and desires to be near him when he is at his quippiest, it really does set them into very clear positions. I don't hate the dynamic. I really think that having somebody like, because I feel like when people are more powerful than Peter, they are often like, oh God, I got to deal with Peter Parker now. Wolverine is always just so put upon by Spider-Man. Or it's like Regent and you're like... Yeah, there's like the attraction is like, uh, I not just that I want to strip your clothes off, I really want to like pull your bones out of you and use them to make a collage. I want to debone <laughs> you like a chicken. It's not sexy at all. But this is a person that could like kill Peter with a thought, but who enjoys his company, wants to be around him, and is missing some of the support and emotional intelligence that Peter has, such that, you know, while Peter appears submissive in a lot of ways and is he has something that he can teach Nate and there is a joy to his life that Nate's has lacked despite their shared traumas and tragedies that Peter can sort of be in the position of saying like here's what a life could be and I just think they play off each other so well I really love that you jump to this idea of he shows Nate Peter shows Nate the life he could have and one of the reasons that I love you highlighting that so much is because I think that scene with Aunt Anna taught me more about, I want to say, what I didn't understand about the Tom DeFalco era of Spider-Man that literally changed everything for me. I'd forgotten that Aunt May died. I'd forgotten that Aunt May died and told Peter she understood that he was Spider-Man and forgave him. And then she dies in like Amazing Spider-Man. 
Spider-Man 400. And she comes back later in the 90s. But for a period of time, Aunt Anna was standing in for Aunt May. That's why she mattered. That's why this character was even brought up in MC2. And thinking about what Tom DeFalco tried to do with that era of Spider-Man, I I went to go list it and I was like, you know, clone stuff, dead ant stuff, killed a baby. Like, (laughs) thinking about Tom DeFalco's priorities in the 90s, I can really see how Spider-Girl is meant to be more, but what if we change the status? status quo but you know it's the way you brought up you know morrison's new x-men earlier thank goodness you did because it allows me to make this you know short segue at the end of the 90s they said we've tried everything and we still can't get it right let's bring back claremont let's do it and there were a couple of things that went wrong in the way that you know he ultimately did a run of fantastic four which everybody can eat a shoe because that run gave us valeria go to the back of the line no one wants you here valeria is the best thing about the fantastic four so come for whatever but celebrate Valeria. And so Claremont comes back to the X-Men and I, I love it. I love it. I love Revolution. I do. Um, It is not what I would call cohesive storytelling. And it's designed in this way that sometimes you have to know which Unlimited to read to be able to even put the books together and know who the characters are. It's so out of control that they said, no, we have to clean house. We have to bring in something totally new and different. And then we got that with JMS over here in a amazing spider-man but like i really think tom defalco tried to do it here first i definitely see what you're saying i completely agree it's very interesting to be coming in so late in the game for all of this coverage that started with the you know daughter of peter parker and mary jane and seeing them in a place where they are post that baby being born and being removed from their lives they are talking about going back to college so you really see that they are like just a couple kids i would probably put them at like 20 here but they are also really trying to start their lives and they just seem both so young and so old compared to where we are with peter parker and mary jane in present continuity and it being decades later and us being unable to to move the dial permanently on Peter, I just so appreciate that this was really an attempt to do that kind of work and to give us a Spider-Man who was recognizable, who had all the same qualities, but who was no longer a boy, who was really going to embrace being a man. And I just think this is a place in which that relationship with Nate could have been such an asset in terms of these two guys who don't quite know what they're doing in their own lives, but together could act as forms of support in taking that next step into whatever they might have done. And I could see that going in such an interesting direction. And you throw Johnny Storm in the mix too. He's the same character caught in just perpetual sort of just post-teenhood. I think there's so much room for these boys characters to grow up even a little bit um think you're seeing it here show so much promise and there really needs to be a recognition of
of the failed commodification of youth as an identity because there's something I can't wait for, and it's Kamala Khan and Miles Morales to grow up with the audience that started with them as children, and as they become 20-somethings, they're going to want to see Miles and Kamala become 20-somethings. Fuck. And then everyone is going to have to see what happens when a super cool hero becomes a super cool adult. And we might see some of these characters grow up because it is a failing of the Marvel Universe that these characters age in nothing resembling real time. I don't know that I always think perfect real-time analogous aging is the best way to move a character forward. After all, this is a fictional universe and it's not told at the speed of a live. So, sure. But I'm so aware that I started younger than characters that I now greatly am older than. And it not in a way that makes me feel old. In a way that makes the function of the storytelling feel stale and dated. Because I don't feel that I am the same thing, just older. I feel I've grown. And every time I see these characters grow with me, and then I see them stunted backward, I'm forced to ask myself, is the modus of delivery outdated? Or is it a fear that the changes could ultimately invalidate success? Are you afraid that growing Spider-Man up might mean that Spider-Man is no longer the number one superhero? Well, sure. And that's a fiduciary concern. But if fiduciary concerns are going to so greatly outstrip the needs of the readership, then I no longer believe that the modus, telling stories with a financial component as the main operating purpose of storytelling, is working out for everyone. And this is just a moment where it's like, yeah, you know, Spider-Man sometimes, I'm reading the Zeb Wells run right now. It's not that far off. Yeah, it's over 20 years later, and the character is not significantly older in any real notable way. It blows my mind that there are people that think that Scott Summers at this moment is in his late 20s, maybe early 30s. Because Scott Summers to me is 45 and should be 45. One of the things I always hear when I say that is like, oh, but like, how could he be a superhero? And I just feel like you've never been to like uh, a bodybuilding gym, but like, have you never seen an athletic 45 year old man? That's insane to me. Like, yeah, you can't be an Olympian, but this is also science fiction. So whatever the fuck, but you can't have lived that much life and not be taking significant strides in age. And there are plenty of other ways around it. If you want to de-age characters from time to time, introduce young versions, make new characters and emphasize them in different ways, there are a lot of options. But I think staying in this temporal and you know aging limbo out of fear that we don't know what will happen next if we make any definitive statements is just odd and you know this is a bit of a tangent because it kind of doesn't factor into this particular thing except that we really are seeing a what if moment that I had never really considered until reading this and it's not just what if Peter Parker aged as we saw in Spider-Man but it's also like I feel as though in addition to it being important to see things like aging, it really is important to see a lot of different relationship structures and sexual identities and all these things. And we really are looking at a moment where I'm asking, like, what if Peter Parker were allowed to be attracted to men in any capacity whatsoever? I really do think this would be a more recognizable Peter Parker to young people today. And it would be one that was leading a much more expansive, the kind of 
expansive life that you want for a superhero because the options for storytelling are just many. And I want to thank you for fagging it back around. Of course, I'm always going to because I'm also looking at the panel where he says... He's laying in bed? Are you looking not, at the panel? No, not there yet because I, I want to throw in, you're a lucky man, Mr. Parker. And Peter says, I think so. At times like this, I'd say my life is almost perfect. And Nate says, almost. And I, you know, he's saying almost like I could also use a boyfriend. I very much can see that additional read. He's also tucking his hair behind his ear, but his hair is too short to be doing that. He's such a bow. <laughs> like while his, you know, wife is looking off sadly in the distance. <laughs> Like she keeps leaving the note in the tackle box. <laughs> She's rolling her eyes because she thinks I have never once said that I would have any problem with this. I told you to go hook up with a guy. I said we could do threesomes, but you're such a scared little bitch, baby. We never do it. So then we do get the the Peter is laying pretty much naked in bed. I think it looks like he's in tight little briefs. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They are definitely legged and they have a loose leg. So they're boxers. So he's no, just... they're not. Hold on. Oh, no, there's a leg there, my friend. Hold on. And you can see up the leg, sort of, not that I zoomed. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, they're trunks. Yeah. They're high thigh. Yeah, okay, I see. But they're kind of baggy. There's some loose, there's some give. And while Peter is nearly nude, laying in bed, Nate enters his mind and gives him good, pleasing dreams from which he shouts thank you. It is of note that Nate makes him imagine his dead aunt, but, you know, it's still kind of Nate giving him nice dreams while he's kind of naked. Although I do love that the blanket magically is like perfectly tucked him in now because he's having good dreams when before he is like restless and naked. Oh, no, no, no. Nate tucked him in. It is also of note that Nate is hovering outside his bedroom window staring at him. And yes, I do believe telekinetically tucked that blanket, tucked Peter in. Yeah. Okay. I'll agree. And then uh, the book sort of diffuses all of the fun with black tarantula like in some sort of circus tent looking like dark side all like what about el uno and chesbro and again not cute chesbro not the chesbro you root for but this weird off-brand chesbro i don't care for and it's just this seven moment where it's the head of el uno they get a head in a box yeah it's just his head in the box Ooh. And that is Black Tarantula's Christmas present from the Rose, just so we can tie it all back to Christmas because it's a holiday issue. Unfortunate to end on that particular note, of course, for the purposes of the book, the story will continue and this is the plot, not the other thing. So it makes total sense, but it was just such a pure moment with Nate and Peter. I would have been so happy to end it there. But of course, this doesn't end there. No, no, no. Before we take a look at the Marvel Holiday Special featuring Chinese food for Christmas, which, man, that title. But I generally think I'm going to give this issue for a grade. Yeah, this is, God, what a what a DeFalco score I have to give it. I'm going to give the issue a B minus, but let me tell you why I think the intent gets an A. Yeah. Oh, God. If Tom DeFalco had had a world as fast as his mind, I don't know that his stories would have still had like these embers that are work. I I don't know how to explain it. There's things about these stories of his that clearly didn't work at the time. And I think it's why they weren't more successful. And I don't know that they were exactly premonitive, but I think I see how these stories, these particular stories, Tom DeFalco stories, extremely influenced the storytelling 
storytelling going on in comics today. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny because you, you we do really see him run the gamut of ideas. Like he is really not willing to let Mayday grow up. And I think that is in large part because he was always told with Mayday, like you get six more issues and then we're definitely going to cancel this book. And he kept having to write it. And so it was never clear, like, when would you grow her up if we're not going to do anymore? Like, when would I have time? But, you know, Mayday is so unable to grow up and she's around for such a long time not doing that, that it's kind of glaring and really unfortunate. And it now is kind of even more unfortunate because you see somebody who is clearly committed to the idea that a young person can and should grow up and isn't, you know, it's very funny. Like, this is a, this is not a bad spot for him. Same age as when he was writing Spider-Girl, but a young 20s man, even a late teens man, I feel like is much less of like, a, oh God, watching this old guy try and write young people is the worst. It really is a problem for Mayday specifically. And the problem might be also that just nobody else gets to write her, so you don't get to form a, a broader picture. But he is in it for Peter Parker. I think he has some really great ideas about who this character is. Setting aside any of the homoerotic stuff between him and Nate, that relationship, a lot of that stuff still stands regardless of whether or not there is a sexual or romantic attraction between them. They really do play off each other well. They represent a missing component in both of their stories and lives that, you know, Spider-Man is Spider-Man and he can't really be stopped. So this didn't hurt his trajectory. But not having these types of characters really did hurt Nate's. This is the type of character that, you know, Cable doesn't have friends like this. So giving Nate friends like this really could have changed that character. And, you know, one of the things we always said about Tom DeFalco is he had such a great understanding of the core of superheroes and what made them great. Even if he wasn't nailing every single story and, you know, the progress wasn't always perfect, he really understood what was there at their heart. And, you know, one issue with Nate Gray, and I'm convinced that the same is true of this character. I see it with Peter Parker. Yeah, I think you're right. It's not necessarily like giving us the future, but he's showing us really solid options. And I do think they are options that we refer back to now and are kind of important for how writers who are our age, who now are writing these characters who were, you know, in their early teens at the time really got some of these ideas. I made the bold comment of there's like gotta be less than 10 or so Marvel holiday special stories like that focus on the Jewish experience and you know having you TK help me understand that the Jewish experience isn't just like eight candles but Christmas you know really gave me some interesting perspective on how frustratingly difficult it was to find stories that fit the bill and I I partially get it insofar as if you want to authentically portray authentic Jewish characters, this probably isn't going to be a super important time of year for them. So yeah, why would you tell stories about like, just like, you know, kind of a time. But I think what is maybe being missed, I mean, I think there are a few things being missed here. And I think there are a lot of reasons why they're not 
being told. But this story at least represents a really good example of one of the many types of stories you can tell, which is the we don't celebrate Christmas, so what are we doing today story. You know, this kind of isn't really a Hanukkah story. Kitty has another Hanukkah story in another Marvel holiday special around the same time, I think maybe 2009, where she's literally lighting the menorah. This is not so much a Hanukkah story as it is what the Jewish people are doing on Christmas Day, which is a great, great story, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot more we could do. What's going on at the Midnight Mission during Hanukkah? I gotta know. So we are here to talk about a story that I did not know was originally a digital exclusive, and I am really fascinated to talk about how this whole book came together. We're going to be taking a look at the final story from the Marvel print collection, Marvel Holiday Special 2011, Chinese Food for Christmas. And really the reason that this title gets me is because uh, my family is really New York and they have Chinese food for anything special. And so Chinese food for Christmas just isn't that weird to me. And all of my uh, Jewish friends and especially my Jewish partners, hey, hey right there, have said to me, you know, yeah, that is, you know, not unusual for a Jewish family. And I, so this title just gets me because I get it, you know, and it makes me smile. Uh, It's by Jamie S. Rich with art by Paco Diaz, color art by Jean-Francois Boulou, letters by Jeff Eckelberg. And I could not have been more excited to see Moon Knight, Songbird, Sasquatch, and Wiccan all clearly like Jewish on panel. And the reason that made me happy is because I feel like I don't think four of them usually make the don't forget also for Jewish list. Yeah, it's always funny to me that Ben Grimm really does not make that list a lot, I notice. And I sort of wonder if it is out of a concern of associating like something that they call the thing with Jewish people. But Ben Grimm's amazing. I I love him and that's perfectly fine. Moon Knight has been coming up a lot for people lately because of the show and because of the you know portrayal of his Judaism and his background in the show. So that is a great one. Songbird was the one I really had no idea about. And I think I am glad to have her in the mix. And then, you know, Billy is really funny because uh, at this point, who even knows? Like, is he Jewish because his grandfather, Magneto, was Jewish? And then Magneto is no longer his grandfather. So does that even apply? Like, you know, or is that from his biological family? It's just so weird and so funny. But I do love seeing him there in this moment. Yeah, a really fun, cute story. I mean, Kitty Pride really is the one who is just like the poster child for Marvel Judaism besides Magneto. Songbird is an interesting one. Like I said, the more the merrier, I guess is probably not something that comes up a lot with this character who is not really a mainstream Marvel character who unfortunately is not going to be appearing in the first Thunderbolts movie as we have it coming out right now. But she is somebody who I think could have a very interesting story in the present that was able to reference her background and I would be interested to see. So, you know, she is only vaguely kind of referenced in this story as well, which I think is a little bit of note. Now, the actual story is terrifically drawn. I love the art on this. So I hope that someone who worked on this project celebrates Hanukkah and the, you know, Jewish faith just out of respect. You cannot convince me that the industry will Eisner is basically responsible 
possible for has Stan Lee, Jack Kirby. Are you going to tell me that the industry that gave us Captain America punching Hitler in the face has a dearth of Jewish creators? If nothing else, all of the headquarters were in New York, and that is a really strong center of, you know, Jewish voices and opportunities for creatives, you know, within communities to thrive. So I feel like, you know, I can't be sure, but I I really do hope that Marvel took the time to have some of the chosen people work on this chosen project. I hope so as well. Really love the art. The one thing that I... And it's like not even a critique because this is something that happened in the 80s and then it just stopped until Krakoa, which is that Kitty Pride has very curly, unruly Jewish hair. And, you know, we can use the excuse that she treats it so that it she, you know, has it straightened. And it's just, it's odd that for years that's the only way we ever saw her when we did used to get depictions of her looking, you know, more recognizable and or stereotypically Jewish. It was a really nice defining feature and this is just a time where it never happened and I would not be surprised if this artist had never even seen an issue where Kitty Pride has curly hair but given that it is an issue about Jewish people during the holidays this would have been the best time to bust that out again and I really hope that we one day get another holiday story for her because the way she's being drawn lately I just would love to see her talking about Hanukkah with her big curly head of hair so I'm going to engage uh, a thing about the kind of inherent problem with what happened with Kitty from some perspective she just kind of gets the Rachel you know what I mean yeah okay hold on go back what's Rachel's name and Jennifer Aniston Rachel Green Oh, Rachel, oh, you're the actual thing. Yeah, good call. So the depiction of a quintessential New York, educated, intellectual, ready-to-go, competent, successful Jewish woman had the Rachel. Oh, so I wonder, because it is not an excuse. I am not like, oh, so you have to forgive it. No, no. I wonder at what... No, these are the reasons. Yeah, I wonder at what point the disingenuity of the depiction of Jewish hair became a problem. Yeah, I I mean, I think there's plenty of people who have identified a lot of places culturally where that became a thing. And I would be really fascinated to know when it started to happen in comics, only because, again, so few Jewish characters. Yeah, you know, it really is funny, given that so much of superhero life takes place in and around New York City and there isn't even like a markedly noticeably even slightly larger percentage of Jewish people in this community it's the ancient joke of there's like three Latinos and two black people in all of Sunnydale right right in the middle of California California. they just yeah yeah, when all of these teams and characters in this universe were being created by many Jewish people it was 
was a time in which it was not necessarily going to be big seller to depict a ton of characters as Jewish. I absolutely get that. And, you know, we are a savvy money-making bunch. And so we did what we had to do. And a lot of the Jewishness of the stories is coded. And that's okay. That's that's what we're working with. But that we have moved the dial so little in all these years is a little bit unfortunate. And I only say that because, you know, getting just a quick story talking about a thing that is very recognizable to me is really fun and enjoyable. And I think there are a lot more of those to be told. And I don't think that people will be as put off as maybe somebody is worried about when it comes to the fiscal issues. Yeah, I really agree because I know that when I see something queer or Latin or I've talked at length about Electra having Greek hair, like as a, as a guy who was affectionately nicknamed Brillo Head, I really, really appreciate it when Electra has Greek hair uh, or when a person with Cuban hair is depicted as having something that can only be described as a multi-angle ever upward growing tree because that is what I had. So I really appreciate it when, you know, I see things that either look like what I know my life, my culture, myself to look like or things reflect it. It's one of the critiques I have about a lot of straight depiction or straight writers depictions of queer characters. It's so difficult to explain what makes a joke within a community successful, authentic, and effective, and what makes a joke sort of vampiric, sort of uh, ineffective, inauthentic. It's hard to say exactly the thing that makes it work, but man, when it's off, it's fucking off. Yeah, it is a very much a you-know-it-when-you-see-it type of thing. And I saw a number of things that I really liked in this issue that connected to my own knowledge of and experience with the Jewish community being someone who lives so close to New York and uh, being surrounded by so many wonderful Jewish communities. It was always like such a an essential part of my growing up. All of the schools I went to, we had off for all of the Jewish holidays and the Christian holidays. It was not set, which, you know, I wish they would go a little bit further and find a way to incorporate. I know at some point it's going to be everybody has off all day, but if we just go year round school, I'm not getting into this right now. So, but I grew up in an area that was very rich with Jewish culture, Jewish heritage, and people who celebrated the Jewish faith. And as such, the idea that a group of Jewish people would be like, oh, you don't have anything going on? You're just going to come with us. Like literally the thought of the phrase, you're just going to come with us. I, I, this felt like, oh my God, this is me. I'm coming, Ben. (laughs) I felt very included in this story by the way that this represented my experiences with the warmth and embracing of the Jewish community who it's so hard for me to explain to other non-Jewish people as somebody with Jewish partners why it is more isolating than you'd fucking think that everything has to be Christmas. Yeah, it is a weird thing. I am culturally, religiously, personally, really not much of a Christmas person. And that has been changing in recent years as my sort of social and romantic circle and that of my partner and their other partners as all of that has expanded and more people are in the mix who celebrate Christmas. I have... I have hung stockings all throughout your polycule. (laughs) 
and it's working. I'm starting to re-engage, and that, that is its own thing, but for years I didn't, whether by choice or sometimes just it was not where my family was, and it is very difficult when you don't wish to engage with Christmas, but have no wish or desire to take that away from anybody else. It, it's just difficult because it is so prominent everywhere, and you can't really not engage at a certain point. And, you know, it's something I don't really even want to complain about because how lucky to live in the world that I live in, but it can be quite isolating when you just feel like the fact that it's just another day for you is like you are, you're getting it wrong because everybody else is, it's not just another day for them. You know, if it were like even 50, 50 or something, or, you know, 75, 25, but there are, I mean, my street, which is one of the busiest streets in the state that I live in is completely dead right now because it's Christmas Eve, which is like unheard of and it will be dead tomorrow. And, you know, just things like that are a little bit odd. And I do appreciate that this story kind of captures that for Ben Grimm, who is just kind of trying to go meet up with friends for the day, he sort of becomes the by default superhero on call and in charge because there is nobody else around because it's Christmas time. That's so, I don't know. I think there's something super insulting about, well, you're what's left. It's that Howie Day lyric. You're so beautiful. You'll just have to do. I don't even know what to, oh, great. We're saved because the thing is the only one left. Oh. And, but also, excuse me, but what about Muslim heroes and agnostic heroes, atheist heroes? What about Buddhist heroes and people of the Baha'i faith? So the idea that you are coming around on Christmas maybe means a little more to me if, and the, if, to the audience perhaps, if given a little more context. Your first episode was published December 17th, 2021, and it is now December 24th, 2022. And since, you know, we can't be together, we decided to do a little recording on Christmas Eve to spend some time together. And so it's been a year and a week since your first episode on the network. And let me tell you, having recently re-edited it for uh, holiday posterity, for repurposing as we are making our way over to the Hubs Plus network, which you could find out all about over at xsforpodcast.com, you pretty much start the episode with, let me tell you why fuck Christmas. (laughs) And then you kind of move into like, and here's why Gen X, but Gen X should fuck Christmas. And like, I'm like, oh, wow, that's really funny because, you know, that's not the TKI, no. So (laughs) then I look ahead and you did another episode for us, like pretty much right away. You were uh, so about it. You were part of the Holiday X Jam a week later, as a matter of fact, originally published on December 24th, 2021. Now, I want to point out that this is X is for Podcast 274. So we did like 130 episodes last year. We're going down to twice a week for my safety and sanity so we are uh, definitely slowing that roll just a bit but regardless uh, back to the point TK you did another episode the next week uh, a year ago today it came out and you of course covered a little bit more Gen X this time you covered 6061 and you were much warmer about Christmas by barely mentioning it 
<laughs> so this is all pretty classic me. But yes, it took a year, but certain influences in my life have sort of thawed my cold main heart where the holidays are concerned, and I appreciate it greatly. And honestly, part of that is because of the memory that I have of the first thing I ever recorded for this show being a Christmas thing. Now I've got this kind of special memory to lean on as well as many others, but it has been really one of the best years of my entire life, and so much of that has been getting to do this show, and I won't harp on that too long, but yeah, this has been a really fantastic year, and I, I love talking about comics overall, but like, I love talking about stuff like this, like in particular, the fact that there is just a lack of Hanukkah issues, and, and what the what the Hanukkah story that we see here tells us, what it gets right, what it kind of doesn't get right, what we could see more of. This is what we have done with these two stories kind of encapsulates everything I love about this show and, you know, more Nate Gray and more Jewish characters doing more holiday stories. Let's go 2023. And as we are transitioning the show over a little bit more to this cool new live thing and like every week the numbers are going up on YouTube, they're going up on the downloads. We couldn't be more grateful that you're all about this new format because we really like it being able to have so many people come in, talk for a few minutes about an issue and, you know, hop off. It's really been a great way to facilitate more of the books that we love and it's allowing us to bring in more titles like Amazing Spider-Man which, you know, we've never even really been able to cover before because there's just always so many books and I want to sort of interact with one thing about the idea of the holiday story that I think is central to the idea of the superhero story and that's we invented so many traditions focused around staying warm and well lit in the coldest of moments because we identify what our brains tell us like scientifically with the world around us right so when we see dark and cold our brains tell us things are bad and of course you know if you get too cold hypothermia and die of course if you get too hot you know die so what I'm getting at here because you're laughing at me and I don't appreciate it I'm trying to wax Christmas poetic but I just that's uh, just no. a beautiful image <laughs> Christmas and you die. So, um, <laughs> you know, we associate the idea of cold with fear and a loss of ability, uh, a certain amount of immobilized, almost childlike paralysis. And it's things like festivals of lights and hanging up Christmas lights and focusing on the brightness of the North Star and all of the ideas that we have put around Christmas where we cuddle up by the fire together nobody ever sings it's martin luther king day curl up by the fire and it's not that january is less cold than december it's that just de- and i'm like wait should we technically have marches for martin luther king day? Like, <laughs> we're not utilizing holiday formatting in a way that truly celebrates the idea outside of christmas and that's even what i'm getting at so much of christmas is based on the idea of staying warm in the coldest time because it gives us hope right and that's what the idea behind a lot of the trappings of these holidays are about. Of course, there's the religious part, but I'm not here to talk about the holy day of Christmas. You 
can talk to a theologian about that. I'm here to talk about the holiday of celebrating this notion that we can stay warm. And it's why the Punisher holiday stories fucking failed me. And it's why in how little we read today, both of these, one trillion percent passed the bechamel test. And that's because the Peter Parker, Nate Gray story are both about coming out of a dark cold. And they are both about finding a warm light where it all felt like there was nothing. And they're both dealing with ghosts and the the loss of childhood hope that was granted to them, this protectorate, by virtue of a parent who loved them. And as we transition into the, you know, rare but not only story that deals with the idea of the Jewish identity at the holidays, we're presented an opportunity to recognize a culture bringing in someone who feels alone. By opening the doors and opening the gates to new people, you're really celebrating so much of what the Jewish faith is about, and you're also celebrating what makes a winter story so powerful. So I read, you know, seven issues containing like 15 Punisher stories, and I felt truly none of them offered me the warmth of a holiday winter's tale, and I recently covered Daredevil number seven from volume three, Mark Wade, Paula Rivera, one of the two best single issues of Daredevil as far as I'm concerned. Of course, Daredevil 219, Badlands, I say it every fucking time, right? But man, these two really do as well. Is either one of them the greatest thing I've ever read? No, no. But you know what? Is actually Charlie Brown, Christmas Time is Here, the greatest jazz song of all time? No. But on December 24th, is it up there? Yes. So, you know. I love everything you said. And yeah, I mean, I I really do think that that idea of coming out of the cold, of providing a light to others is what the time of year should be about, even if you don't care for it. You know, it is always cold. It is always lonely in the winter. And just, you know, the group of Jewish people getting together and having Chinese food because everybody else is is doing stuff and they don't want to be alone and they want to, you know, be with friends. I can't believe they're all friends with Songbird. Why is this child there? It's okay. There are now other children here, so it's not weird. It's really sweet. And I love that I kind of now have this memory and this thought of these characters that I identify with a little bit in this particular story. And then, you know, the Nate Gray one, the the sweetest part about it is just this idea that Peter invites Nate over for Christmas dinner. Like, Nate is all alone. It it changes nothing for the the Parker-Watson family, but, you know, he says you're not going to be alone on Christmas, and they have a lovely meal, and they are in love with each other. But it really is about just that, you know, he gives the gift of not being alone or feeling alone on Christmas, and that is a lovely thing. Religion aside, holiday trappings aside, even, it is, I think, something we can all take away from this, regardless of how we feel, just that, like, it is a good time to make sure that the people that you love are not alone, and that maybe even the people you don't quite know are not alone. And it's funny that holiday stories at Marvel are such a tradition, and they're so ingrained in the bigger picture narrative of how we tell stories, but it's so counterintuitive to the nature of comic book storytelling, which is 
calendar based, but it's offset and prepared in advance. And like, look, I worked for Walt Disney World and I know that they start thinking about 2026's Christmas last week. So like, I know that you plan this stuff way in advance, but the idea that holiday stories are so connected with Christmas and <laughs> that holiday stories are so connected with comics, it really is sort of a, a testament to how these stories survive and persevere even in a very date-based industry that can make it tricky. And I'm glad to have done another special of holiday coverage with you. You know, I like I said, I give the story an A. You know, A minus probably because it's not the most exciting thing I've ever read. But on the whole, this is an A minus story for me. I had a great time and I look forward to everything we're going to do in 2023. Yeah, I think for me, the Nate Gray story is a solid B and I think you listed all of the qualifiers. It's always going to be like that with us and the Tom DeFalco stuff. It's really uh, difficult to take it as a whole. And I don't know why that's so easy for other comics, but I think what it is is that it's so important to recognize the the good stuff that is there, even if it kind of can't go in conjunction with some of the not-so-great stuff. This one, I think A- minus is right on the money. It is not its fault that it is one of far too few stories of its kind. As a story of its kind, it is lovely and charming and true to experience as far as I am concerned. And I just really hope that creators who have a different experience of the holidays than the standard Christmas experience are looking forward to 2023 holiday storytelling opportunities and that they get the chance to write some really beautiful stories with some of the characters that we know and love who we might be really excited to see experience the holidays in the same way that we do in whatever way that may be and like you i am just so excited for all that 2023 has to offer and until then tk where can everybody find you online you can find me like everywhere on social media now because we just don't know what's going to happen with that one place we usually are at x mate x gray x you can of course find me on this show sunday mornings doing sunday brunch talking about comics and at various other times recording whatever we decide we're going to do and i think we've got a lot more interesting things coming up that won't just be sundays and you'll find me at every one of those events plus all over xsforpodcast.com and the hubs plus network on youtube as well as at nico action on twitter and all of those other amazing social networks that i seem to be registering on more and more by the day as far as my personal work you can check out kidriotcomics.com and i want to thank everybody for purchasing young men in love all of the best of year lists and awards nominations are amazing and the whole team is so grateful thank you so much and until next time keep those mutant lights lit those Krakoan gateways open remember to keep it loose and slam heat and we'll see you in 2023 unless there's another episode coming out i never i never know i don't think i don't think we can know until we hit that january 1st you just never know what we're gonna decide we want to record so happy holidays happy holidays happy holidays